This is Dana Thomas, and you're listening to The Green Dream, a podcast about how to green up your life by Wondercast Studio. Climate change is bearing down on us like a mighty hurricane, and it's scary as hell, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dana Thomas, a leading voice in the sustainable fashion movement. On The Green Dream, I welcome global experts, creators, and change makers from politics, business, and the arts for dynamic conversations on how you can green up your life. The Green Dream is the podcast of hope. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, and at select stores. This month has been one of the most sparkly in ages. First, we had the Met Gala in New York, the Metropolitan Museum of Art Costume Institute's annual black tie fundraiser. To kick off its latest blockbuster exhibition, Karl Lagerfeld, A Line of Beauty, on show until July 16. Evites were asked to dress in homage to Karl Lagerfeld, the longtime designer of Chanel, Fendi, and Chloe, as well as his own namesake brand. Carl died in 2019 at the age of 85. That dictate meant high glamour on the red carpet with lots of important jewelry. A few days later, there was the coronation of King Charles III at Westminster Abbey. And while in these difficult economic times, guests were asked not to wear coronets and tiaras, there was still a lot of remarkable jewelry on display, most notably the king and queen's crowns. And now we have the Cannes Film Festival, a two-week-long glittering red carpet parade on the Riviera, and by far the glamorous cinema event of the year. Anything and everything goes at Cannes. To talk about all this shimmer and shine and how it's sustainable, because yes, it is, we have leading jewelry expert Carol Woolton. When Carol joined Tatler Magazine in London in 2001, she created the role of jewelry editor, one she later carried on to British Vogue, and one that is now an important post at all major glossy magazines. She has written several books on the subject, including The New Stone Age, and coming this fall, Dolce & Gabbana High Jewelry, published by Rizzoli. And Carol has a delightful podcast called If Jewels Could Talk. On it, she speaks with owners of important jewelry collections and about the history of famous jewelry. This fall, a book inspired by the podcast, also called If Jewels Could Talk, will be published by Simon & Schuster. Carol Woolton, welcome to The Green Dream. So let's talk about sparkle. There's been a lot of sparkle recently at the coronation of King Charles and now on the red carpet at the Cannes Film Festival. Why is sparkle so important in our lives? Why do we need sparkle? Dana, thank you so much for inviting me on The Green Dream. We have always needed sparkle. It's like the first thing we ever did as human beings. I'd say it's our first art form, even before we daubed the sides of caves with ochre and created images. We were adorning ourselves. I don't know why. It's a deep inner primal need. And I think at whatever level you do it, whether it's a little silver or an iron ring or it's the St. Edward's crown on King Charles's head, we have 
a need to adorn ourselves. It's been, like you said, part of our society since prehistory. I even wrote that in Deluxe, that we've decorated ourselves to set ourselves apart from others. And it's part of that. But there's also something sparkle gives us sparkle, right? Well, I think that goes back to us as prehistory. Again, it's something deep-seated for our survival, our very survival. I will. People listening might think, oh my God, how can jewelry possibly be associated with survival? But actually, originally, you can imagine if you saw some water glinting in the sun in the distance, that water would have kept you alive and you would gravitate towards it. So I think there's something in us that we gravitate towards something that shimmers and shines because it has been hardwired in us that we need that. Interesting. And jewelry is inherently, and gems are inherently sustainable because they're passed down from generation to generation. We keep jewels. We don't throw them away. They're not part of our throwaway culture of like buy it and then toss it. We pass them down. We redesign them. We give them as gifts that, you know, you how many women have their grandmother or their mother's engagement rings? Like this is something that carries on that keeps these gems alive, right? It does. I mean, it's also the sort of the bane of the historian's life that actually you can't really, it's not very easy to find any Georgian jewellery because people recycle it. People have always recycled it. So when anything slightly fell out of fashion or it didn't look right, people would reset it, melt it down, take the stones out, put it in a more modern setting. And actually for historians, that's the bane of their life because they can't find these original beautiful pieces and the original setting. Even to sort of royal jewels, I think there was a big costume gala ball in London in the late part of the 19th century, the Devonshire House Ball. And there was this huge rumour of excitement that somebody was coming wearing the French crown jewels. But of course, what had happened is she'd reset it. And so she was actually wearing the gems that had been in the crown jewels, but they weren't the crown jewels anymore. So it's always had this thing of recycling, resetting, using stones again, which is why, you know, jewellery is so well placed now in this looking at everything we do with this lens of sustainability and environmental practices and ethical production, that jewellery is really well placed to tick those boxes and satisfy the things that we all are looking for right now and the questions that we need to ask, the very questions we need to ask. And I guess that's why when we find beautiful jewelry from ancient Greece or Egypt, it goes in a museum and it's in a case perfectly lit. And it's kind of a big deal to see it because it hasn't been reset. It hasn't been melted down that we found this in some archaeological dig or in a tomb And it is of its period. It hasn't been recycled, right? Well, it has an instant connection to that moment. And it's also what jewellery does is, it's just why on my podcast I tell these stories that jewels could talk. Because if they could talk, you'll take them right back to that Egyptian civilization, And you can imagine the woman who wore it and what even what her life was like. Because her choice, her choice of stones, her choice of what she wore and how she wore it, tell of her existence and what was important to her. So therefore, the identity, her social connections, it tells of the wider civilization's social connections. It might be lapis lazuli. Now, there was no lapis lazuli mined in Egypt. They had to bring it from Afghanistan. So it shows of their early trading ability, social connections, and how they were able to get that lapis to Egypt 
to be used in jewellery. So it tells you so many things. Plus, what I find sort of extraordinary about it is when you see it in that showcase, you can imagine taking it out and wearing it and not looking out of place now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jewellery is endlessly inspirational and we always look back. And there's so many jewellers, like when we celebrated last year the anniversary of the finding of King Tutankhamun's tomb. You know, again, there's this whole rash of Egyptian-inspired jewellery and Egyptian-inspired symbolism and scarabs. And, you know, we've had this from the very beginning, that there'd been these sort of ancient revivals that people look back and they get inspired again. Now, one of the great tales and stories about jewellery, like you said before, is the redesigning or reapportioning of stones like the French crown jewels reset for the Devonshire house party. I remember reading about the Maharaja having amazing regalia and that this was taken apart and sold and used in all sorts of European royal jewels or even not royal jewels. With that story, I mean, of course, the Maharajas had the most fantastic treasures and wore the most amazing gulls egg-sized pearls and extraordinary jewels. But, you know, they went through this period of coming over and being influenced by what was happening in the West. And they would arrive with cases, can you imagine, sort of trunk loads of precious gems, diamonds, pearls, a lot of them loose, and want them to be set in a sort of Eastern manner. And when they arrived in Paris with maybe 40 pink turbaned servants to accompany them, sort of taking over like 35 suites at the Ritz and the Place Vendôme. And from there, they would go to Boucheron, they would go to Cartier, they would go and have these magnificent treasures created in a way that they felt was Western. Having made that impact, all the chics, socialites and aristocrats wanted their jewels set with some Eastern influence, some Indian influence. So there was this sort of cross-pollination of style and design coalescing in Paris in the sort of 1920s. Fantastic. Now, when some of those big regalias and treasures were broken apart later, did any of them wind up in things that we saw in King Charles's coronation? Talk about King Charles's coronation. There wasn't a lot of jewelry on display, but he was wearing a lot and Queen Camilla was wearing a lot. What did we see there? Was there any that was coming from previous things that they had taken apart and re-put into their designs? Yes, well, the regalia, the crown jewels are so important because there are about 100 pieces in them. And I mean, the oldest is a 12th century spoon that was actually used at the moment of anointing, which is the sort of sacrament of the coronation. Obviously, it's one of the few sets of crown jewels that is used working. It's used in our coronations because we have a crowned head. And most other countries have done away with this. Obviously, we had our wobbly moment in the Civil War with Oliver Cromwell, who wanted a republic. And of course, the first thing any Republican, whether they're the Bolsheviks or Oliver Cromwell in the 16th century in Britain, or is it the Third Republic in Paris? Paris a couple of times. <laughs> the Republicans in Paris, the first thing they do is melt down the crown jewels because they don't want any monarchists rallying around the most symbolic part of monarchy, which is the crown jewels. So we're very lucky that we have this history. And it is the stones more than anything that's symbolic of this lineage, which goes back a thousand years. 
there is a small sapphire that, I mean, basically, we saw two crowns with King Charles. There's the imperial state crown, that is what I term his working crown, i.e. at any point in his reign where he needs to wear a crown, there's a crown moment, he wears that. There's an Edward's crown, which is based on a medieval design because you know it had to be remade with the restoration of the monarchy when Charles II came back to England and took the throne. That is only used at the moment of coronation. So that's used once in his reign at the moment of coronation, and that's it. The stones in the imperial state crown, the most ancient stones, the little blue sapphire on the top of the mond, on the top of the crown with the cross, there's a small blue sapphire which dates back to Edward the Confessor. Edward the Confessor was buried on a site where Westminster Abbey is now. He was dug up twice as they made the abbey bigger. On the second time he was dug up, the coffin was opened and his ring was taken off his finger, which was a blue sapphire intaglio ring. And that sat in Westminster Abbey for 300 years. People could visit it. And because Edward the Confessor was the only monarch ever to be canonised and made a saint, it was seen as a holy relic and people went and could visit it, kiss it, touch the stone. And it stayed there for about 300 years until Henry VIII decided that he quite fancied that stone and he took it and wore it. And then we can see in portraiture subsequent kings and queens and how they chose to wear it. Elizabeth I wore that stone on her forehead. George IV wore it. Princess Charlotte, his daughter, who didn't take the throne because she died in childbirth, wore it. And so it goes on until King Charles wore it, you know, recently. So there's that stone. There's the Black Princess Ruby that goes back to the 14th century, which is actually a spinel. And there's the Great Cullinan Diamond that goes back to 1905 that was gifted to Edward VII. And the largest stones are in the imperial state crown and the scepter. And then the queen had a crown that was made for Queen Mary's coronation in 1911, set with other stones from this great Cullinan diamond, which was the largest diamond ever found, 3,100 carats. And it was cut into about nine stones, the biggest of which, as I said, are in the crown jewels. And then the Queen wore Cullinan, what's called Cullinan 3 and 4, which are about 90 carats and 60 wow. carats each, you can imagine, as a brooch. And those were set into the crown that the Queen wore with Cullinan 5, which is a lovely heart-shaped diamond. And I felt for me that was quite symbolic of the relationship between the Queen and Queen, which, as we know, is very long. This is a long love story. Mm. And I felt having that heart put into the crown, encrusted with other diamonds, and we know diamonds mean forever. So the heart encrusted within the diamond means love forever and ever. That sort of eternal love. And I felt that was quite symbolic. Very beautiful. Now, traditionally at coronations, women wore family tiaras, correct? Yes. Ancestral family tiaras would come out of the sea. For Queen Elizabeth's in 1953, obviously it was post-war. The country was still on rationing. I mean, to get the dresses made for the maids of honour, which included Lady Anne Coke, who is the best-selling author now, and Glen Connor. And when I've interviewed her about it, she said, we were freezing. It was a cold, wet day, like this coronation. 
And we had terribly thin gowns because they couldn't be lined because everyone was still actually on rations and the fabric was rationed. So she said, we actually froze. So post-war, imagine people hadn't been socialising, they hadn't been going out. And here was a moment that they could bring out the family jewels. So there was a rush to Gowrard, the crown jeweller, and who had to mend, polish, fix all these tiaras that hadn't seen the light of day for so long. It created this incredible scene of brilliance in the abbey. As Anne Glencorn has said, her abiding memory was walking past row upon row upon row of glittering tiaras. Obviously, we didn't have at this coronation. Now, why did the king dissuade this from happening? Why did he say no tiaras, wear hats, or no hats even if you're not feeling hatty? Why play it down? I mean, that was a much more of an era of austerity than it is right now. And they said, play it up. Why did they say don't? I think because he wanted to set the tone for his reign, which is a new reign, 70 years after his mother, and he wanted to reflect the modern age. We are living, as we all are, in this cost of living crisis. People are struggling. We've had the terrible COVID years where so many people have struggled and are still struggling with the aftermath of that pandemic. And I think he felt it just wasn't appropriate. In the modern age now, as you know, the hereditary peerage aren't in the House of Lords anymore. They were thrown out some years ago, like 20 years ago. During the Tony Blair labor years, right? And so the people in the House of Lords now don't necessarily own tiaras. These are not the sort of Mm. families who traditionally supported the king and were there in their own coronets and their wives would be in their ancestral tiaras. I mean, that doesn't, they're not part of that anymore and they weren't invited. And I think he wanted to reflect the modern age and he felt that wasn't appropriate. Now, what I hoped for was in spite of that, that the royal family themselves would wear the tiaras. And if they wore them, then the visiting foreign royals who were guests would have worn theirs. And we would have had a bit more of a jeweled spectacle because when else do we see them? When else do we see them? We won't have another big royal moment now for years. I think it's fantastic to see these things on people's heads and worn like that. And it is part of our history. And it's not elitist. It doesn't have to be elitist. Anyone can wear a tiara. And I said before, you know, anyone who's invited, get hold of a tiara, borrow one, wear a fake one. It doesn't matter. Wear one. You can rent it. This is the moment. I love on Piccadilly, you can rent them for your wedding or for an occasion. And it's absolutely reasonable to do so. And it's fun. Yes, it's not just for aristocracy and royalty. It's anyone to have some fun and dress up because... There's not much that we do that dresses up now. And I think it was just a moment that obviously doing what I do, I would have loved to have seen a bit more jewellery. What we did see a lot of was brooches, which I thought was a nice nod to Queen Elizabeth. That was one of her signatures, was wearing bright, cheerful, popping, happy colours. She always wore a bright, cheerful, matching hat, and she always had a brooch. So there were some very beautiful brooches, which have been out of fashion for a long time. They're very sort of retro 1950s and 60s. And I was thrilled as a brooch lover to see them back in fashion. What were some of the favorite ones that you saw? Well, I have to say my very favorite was on Lionel Richie. I thought the minute Lionel Richie walked into the Abbey looking so elegant in his morning coat with this fabulous 
huge down brooch. I thought, oh my God, that's chic. He looks fantastic. And it was a garage brooch, which was actually modern. I mean, it was created quite recently, but I thought he looked terrific. I loved that. And Crown Prince Mary of Denmark had been given a beautiful turquoise and diamond brooch by Queen Marguerite II. And that was actually owned by Catherine the Great. So that was a lovely historic piece. Zara Tyndall, the daughter of the Princess Royal, had a beautiful 19th century brooch on, which had been a gift from her mother for her wedding. So we saw quite a few 19th century brooches, but it was almost as if the whole congregation thought, we've got to keep it toned down. And you didn't have big necklaces, you had pearl and diamond, not big earrings. And I think the only tiny splash we saw with this occasional brooch. Because we need our sparkle. We need our sparkle. We need our And it's a celebration. And if you don't sparkle when it's celebration time, when do you sparkle? I know. The other one that we had, which was so beautiful, was worn by Sheikha Altani, who wore this beautiful old Cartier turban ornament. And she had a sort of pink silk hat, quasi-turban, with this fantastic, large, sort of whiskey-coloured diamond, famous, famous turban ornament on her hat, which was just beautiful. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency, from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, and at select stores. If you're enjoying this episode, check out our interview with Cameron Silver, the king of vintage couture and the founder of Decades, a pre-loved fashion boutique in Los Angeles. We talk about how you can dress like a movie star affordably by shopping for chic secondhand clothes. Find it and all Green Dream episodes wherever you get your podcasts or on my new Substack page on substack.com. There, you'll find all of my Green Dream newsletters and podcasts, zippy daily posts, and for a small subscription, a plethora of fab bonus material. Now back to our interview with jewelry expert Carol Woolton, contributing editor to British Vogue, and host of the podcast, If Jewels Could Talk. Its accompanying book, also called If Jewels Could Talk, will be published by Simon & Schuster in October. Right now, we're seeing a lot of jewels on the Conrad carpet. Chopard is one of the festival's longtime sponsors, and it lends jewels to movie stars to wear for their premieres. But other brands do this too, like Harry Winston, Cartier, and some stars are even paid to wear the jewelry, what I described in my first book, Deluxe, as red carpet revenue. What do you think about the lending of jewels for big events to people who quite honestly can't afford it or even being paid to wear it. And is it okay because they're promoting the wearing of beautiful jewelry and keeping it in fashion? Or is it just sort of taking away from the magic of jewelry? No, I think it's sort of adding to the magic of jewelry because as I said, talking about the coronation, when else do we get to see these magnificent pieces? And there's a great synergy between jewelry and the red carpet. And there always has been. I mean, scroll back to the very early days of Hollywood. And I think it was really the second Academy Awards where Mary Pickford accepted her best actress statuette, Twinkling with Diamonds. And it actually made her film, which wasn't doing particularly well at the box office, sort of box office bonanza. And really people attributed her appearance at the Academy Awards with the film doing so well. So 
ever since then, you know, there's been this synergy of wearing jewels on the red carpet and looking fabulous and movie star like the screen goddesses. And Harry Winston then started the diamond system that we do now of diamond loaning, you know, writing to the nominees and saying, would you like to come in, choose something to wear? Well, now it's a bit fiercer than that. Every single brand in the world fights to get their jewellery onto a star. And Caroline Scherfley, who is a co-president of Chopin, is very smart about it because she really supports the arts. She has supported the Cannes Film Festival for years. And she's very involved, therefore, in young actresses, their careers, seeing which films will do well and which films will be awarded. And she makes relationships very early on with young actresses. So in supporting them and helping them dress early in their careers, later on they remember that and they have an association with Chopin already. So I think, you know, for a period of time, for about six years, she got every single Academy Award winner wearing Chopin because she'd made these connections and relationships. So if you were wearing Chopin, it was like, you might get to be a winner. <laughs> and I think can, I mean, as you know better than me, Dana, living in France and watching it for so many years on the fashion world, I mean, it's really been associated with trying to grab the attention. There's so many photographers, so many people there. It's a bit of the hustle and bustle. So how do you set yourself apart? And I think Early on, wasn't it one actress who appeared in a skimpy bikini in the 1960s who got herself on the front pages everywhere? Well, now they do it with big emeralds and big sapphires and wearing sensational jewels. So there's always been that relationship. And as we're seeing at the moment. And Chopard, again, does a lot of the red carpet jewelry for Cannes since they have a salon there. They have a whole setup. The stars come into the hotel and go straight up to their suite and they borrow same day and bring it straight back. And it, you don't even have to be a top top star. You can be the wife of a producer and wear Chopard. Chopard blankets the red carpet with jewels. Now, one of the things interesting about Chopard is that it was also very early on communicating its sustainability cred, that it was using recycled gold, that it was using sustainably or responsibly mined diamonds and other jewels, meaning that they're not... It's a green gold. It's a green gold. What does this mean? Well, that means having some form of traceability to it because it's like less than, I think it's about 1% of the world's gold is traceable, which is extraordinary. And I think now we all know it's in our consciousness that we want to know where our stones have come from. We've done this for many years when the Kimberley process started years ago, that you ask where the diamond from, where did it come from, which country? <laughs> That's a lot, thanks to Leo DiCaprio and his Blood Diamond movie that made it really in our public consciousness, yeah. and right? So all the countries signed up to the Kimberley process. You know, the big diamond miners have done so much work, you know, like De Beers. And it's not just where does your stone come from, and to know that it's had no negative impact in the surrounding area and to the community you want to know it's had a positive impact. Diamond mining has lifted African countries out of poverty. It is extraordinary. They build schools, they build hospitals, roads, natural parks, they protect wildlife. They educate. In Botswana, there's something like 500,000 kids educated every year through the diamond process. Some of these mines are in very remote places. Diamonds are the mainstay for employment and strengthening communities in these remote places. And obviously now we have tracker platforms, 
the blockchain-backed platforms. So they use artificial intelligence and advanced security technology to so you can trace your diamonds, the journey through the supply chain. There are other important things happening. For instance, diamonds, when they come to the surface, come in kimberlite pipes. It's one of these sort of magical, extraordinary systems of the earth that the diamonds are created when, you know, a billion years ago when the earth's molten. And the way they came near the surface was in these kimberlite pipes, so it's sort of like elevators, bringing them up. De Beers have done a lot of research and they have found that these kimberlite pipes, which is basically a sort of waste product, can actually trap and hold carbon. So not only using certain you know, solar power, using wind power in their mines, can they be carbon neutral? In a few years' time, they're actually going to be carbon negative. And not only that, because of extra kimberlite pipes, they will be able to take and store carbon emissions from other areas of the luxury industry. So there are all kinds of things like that happening that, you know, the diamond industry sorted itself out. And I've been to these mines. And I think this is why you see at Cannes, you see at the recent Met Gala, at the Academy Awards, we'll see so many actresses are very happy to be wearing diamonds. And they're wearing those diamonds because often they've gone to the mines, Julianne more particularly. You know, they don't wear things that they're not happy with. So they will do their research. And Julianne Moore's been out to Botswana. I know she went to the Arapa mine when I had just been to the Arapa mine. And they will look at the fair wages. They will look at the communities. They will look at the women running these mines. And that is why they're happy to wear diamonds, because they have looked at the whole traceability and the supply journey of these stones. And I think that gold is the next thing that the industry is turning its attention to. And there was something very exciting at the Met Gala recently. Michaela Cole, the actress and writer, an award winner who was co-hosting the gala, wore some incredible gold earrings from a Ghanaian jeweller called Emma Cole, who lives in London, who is the head of the diaspora for jewellery at the Victoria and Albert Museum. She wanted to create something for Michaela. It was very important for Michaela that she used a jeweller whose roots were in West Africa because Emma is from Ghana as well. And they wanted to use gold from West Africa. And they used gold from something called single mine origin. That is from single mines. And again, they have all these systems in place to support the local community, to support the wildlife to look after the land. And they have a QR code, a unique QR code on their gold, which traces the journey of the gold from the mine to the design studio, to Michaela wearing it at the Met Gala. So it is completely traceable. And you can go on and see all the people who've involved in the mining of this and the sourcing of it. And it goes straight from single mine origin to the designer's studio. And this is a unique process that's starting and they're kind of trailblazing the way of what's going to happen in gold in the future. I mean, Prada just launched their first fine jewellery collection, which is called Eterna. It's all about gold. And they are, you know, sustainability, as you know, takes a bit of time. They've spent three years making sure they can 
produce sustainable gold because the first collection is just gold. And they were inspired by their re-nylon fabric, which was a regenerated nylon textile created from the purification of plastic waste. So they are using a variety of sources of gold from electronic parts like smartphone circuit bands. We create a lot of electronic waste and a lot of gold, the purest 24 karat gold is in that electronic waste. So they are using that, sourcing it, using it, melting it. You will have with your Prada jewellery an electronic card that when you tap it with your phone can verify the authenticity and sustainable credentials of your piece of jewellery. So it's extraordinary. You know, people are now very aware that gold is the next thing that needs to be tackled within the jewellery industry. There's also Pippa Small, who's, as you know, an anthropologist and a jewellery designer. She works very closely with different communities in different parts of the world, preserving their crafts and traditional skills. And she goes out there and works very closely with these people. And she started a project with the Association of Responsible Miners in Colombia. She's supporting women gold panners who are extracting gold. Couldn't be more eco-clean and carbon neutral because they're using wooden pans to lift the gravel from the riverbed, you know, swirl it around and then separate the gold from the silt and slurry and rock from the riverbed so there's no chemicals, no machines. And they pan this gold as part of their economic survival. And the sale of gold provides money for their health and education of their families. They leave some gold there because they know their future generations who will come and will need that gold to survive. So they're not just stripping the river bare, they're going to leave gold there for future because they know there's a finite supply. Online, you can meet the makers, so you can go and see these women panning gold. You can meet the people who are going to create these pieces of jewellery with it. And I think if technology has done anything for us, it allows us to connect. And therefore, people in remote parts of the world have a voice. They can tell us what's happening. They can show us what's happening. It's very hard now for people not to pay people a fair wage, not to give them health and support them and to look at the practices that are being used and to look at the local area, to look at the wildlife, to support it. And I very much feel strongly that in using natural metals and stones, by that I mean mine diamonds, we are supporting these communities. I know there's a debate about the lab-created diamonds, a very small business they don't release sustainability quotas. A lot of water is used, a lot of energy. We don't know about it because it's not released. And people say it's an ethical choice, but the ethics are not proven. Plus, you are not supporting a community. You are not allowing people to economically survive, to build their own businesses, to, to help their families, to help particular countries lift them out of poverty. So I feel strongly we have to support these nations in using their stones and using their metal, which is supporting them right. and enabling education, enabling lives to survive and do well. Now, I did want to bring that up, so I'm going to bring it up clearly so that people understand. In our tech world today, there is the rise of lab-grown diamonds. There's two different kinds of synthetic diamonds. There's lab-grown diamonds, which are just made in a lab through compressing things. You can explain it better than I can. And then there's also, we had on our program, the founder of Sky Diamonds, Dale Vince. And Sky Diamonds captures carbon mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. the air that's already out there, pollution, and turns it back into diamonds because that's what diamonds are made of is carbon. 
he uses wind power and solar power. So he's trying to do it the greenest way possible. But some of these synthetic diamond companies or lab-grown diamond companies are not so green. They're using a lot of energy. It's not terribly transparent. It's not sequestering carbon like Sky Diamond is. But it is bringing, in a democratic way, lower-priced diamonds to a broader audience. Or is it? I think there's a place in the market for both. Yes, it can be more reasonably priced, and maybe that's suitable for you young people, suitable for other generations who might want to say, gosh, I'm going to get that lab-grown diamond, and then I might trade up in a few years and buy a natural stone. They have the same chemical makeup. Are they the same thing? No, they're not. Can you compare something grown over a couple of weeks in a lab in Kansas or China as something that is a billion years old that came from the centre of the earth? I find that magical, and I think that's part of the magic of jewellery, is its history. And I think if you separate a stone from the magic of that journey, that extraordinary thing of coming from the centre of the earth, and then you need man to create it into something that sparkles, to cut it, to release that inner fire and brilliance. I think that's all part, as we were talking at the beginning, of the sparkle, the magic of a piece of jewellery. Plus, you are investing in something that does hold, has a store of value. Lab-grown diamonds, there isn't a store of value, you know, that doesn't have a sort of secondary marketplace. So I worry in the fact that to be sustainable now, you need the circular economy. And it's not proven with lab grand diamonds that you will have that. And old jewelry is absolutely the heart of a circular economy that you just keep wearing it and passing it on and recycling it and resetting it and then bringing it back onto your ring around your neck or hanging from your ears. Plus, you, know, you talked about complex stones, and I feel that this is the next challenge that the industry has to face that you will always have in any industry, whether it's fashion, whether it's jewellery, whether it's food production, whatever it is, you're going to have charlatans, people who want to cheat the system, people who don't want to do it correctly. And I fear that we need to make the difference between these stones, because otherwise people are going to swap them into the industry which is probably already happening. They're trickling in and be sold as something else. So the worry is that it's all very well if you're buying something that you know is lab-grown or that you know has been heat-treated, so its colour's been enhanced. That's fine if you know what you're paying for. But if you think you're buying a mine diamond and someone is slipping in a lab-created one because you're not going to see the difference you're going to create something which is not ethical, which people are going to be cheated and fooled. And I think this is the next challenge. So I do think we need to emphasise the point of difference. So what do you think will be the future of natural stones and gold? We have recycled gold, which actually we've been doing forever, but has now become part of the conversation. And some brands like Pomolato only use 100% recycled gold now. They don't mine new gold or use, I guess, would you call it virgin gold or recently mined gold that they're keeping in circulation the gold that's already out there. But what else is going to happen that's going to be for consumers, you know, straight up besides having the lab-grown stones or the sky diamonds that are carbon captured from the sky, which I kind of love. And that will always be a tiny little market, but it's at least trying to do some positive. Or having these beautiful ones coming out of the ground. What what else will we see? What are some the future of gems? Well, I think there's more traceability at the moment. And I think the fact is that QR codes can take us straight there. 
instead of sort of when people travel and they say, I went to Sri Lanka and I went and I went to this place and I bought this stone, you know, if we're buying from anywhere locally, we'll be able to go straight there to the mine, take a look, take a look at the miners, say, this is where I live, this is what I do. And I think this gives people great peace of mind that what they're buying is the right thing. And it is part of what I always say jewellery does, that it kind of connects us and links us. And, and storytelling. I think the more you know, the more magical your jewel is, because that creates your own personal story. Thank you so much, Carol Woolton, for joining us on The Green Dream and talking about sparkle and the beauty of gold and stones and their importance in our lives. We look forward to seeing more on the Cannes Film Festival's red carpet this week and at many award shows and events coming in our lives, as well as your upcoming books and listening to your podcast, If Jewels Could Talk. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning into The Green Dream. To read more hopeful climate stories, sign up for The Green Dream newsletter on our website, thegreendream.studio, and check out my new Substack page on substack.com. There you'll find all The Green Dream newsletters and podcasts, zippy daily posts, and for a small subscription, a plethora of fab bonus material. I'll be back in two weeks with Sutton Strack of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, Sutton has recently launched a circular homeware collection at her Beverly Hills boutique, also called Sutton, and online at thesuttonconcept.com. We'll talk about that project, Paris Couture, the Housewives of Beverly Hills, and our surprisingly close Texas roots. Do tune in. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, and at select stores. This episode of The Green Dream was written by Dana Thomas from Talkbox Productions with executive producer Tavia Gilbert with mix and master by Kayla Elrod, music performed by Eric Brace of Red Beat Records in Nashville, Tennessee. The Green Dream is a production of Wondercast Studio in association with Mortimer House. You can find us online at wondercast.studio or through your smart speaker on Wondercast Radio. I'm Dana Thomas, the European Sustainability Editor for British Vogue. You can read my monthly column, also called The Green Dream, in the magazine or online at vogue.co.uk. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter, where my handle for both is Dana Thomas Paris. Thank you for listening.